Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today we're sitting with Adam Monahan, a good friend of mine from the days back in Nicaragua who was the founding father of Project Wu. And I thought this would be a good time to bring him on the show to give those who are maybe contemplating going down to a third world country and starting a life for themselves, or even just somebody who's decided that they want to go down to help uh, people in a third world country, whether it's um, through starting an orphanage or going and working in an orphanage or going down and starting your own project in a, an environment that you think could use your help. And I think he's going to be able to give us some really nice perspective on the reality of doing something like that and the model that him and his partner used to start their theirs. And I got to see this from start to finish. So I have tremendous respect for what him and his partner did because I lived in the small village that they started in and I watched the whole thing grow and become successful in many ways. But I know they had some roadblocks. So I'd like to bring him on the show and... um give some more insight into how to go about starting your own NGO in a third world country. So with that said, Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chapin. It's a pleasure, my man. We spent a lot of years in Nicaragua together and became quite good friends. And I have tremendous respect for what you and Nick did. I mean, you guys started Project Wu literally in the house that we had Giants foot in. And uh, I got to hear you break down the model of how you were going to do it. And to be quite honest, I was super pessimistic. I was kind of, I was kind of the negative Nelly of the group and sitting there just like, this is never going to work. You guys, like you were wasting your time, but to watch you persist because you were the, the man on the ground. I just, I fell in love with your work, man, and what you accomplished down there. And you did a really good thing in my opinion, but I watched a really interesting movie last night, which, uh, I'll share with everybody. It's called Food Inc. And it kind of gave a different perspective on NGOs that I had never really considered and highly recommend anybody out there who has Netflix to check it out. And it'll probably be brought up later in the show with Adam. But with that said, I'd like to, Adam, if you don't mind, kind of share maybe a little bit about where you're from, your background, and, and how you wound up down in Nicaragua. Sure. I'm happy to do that. Um, just first of all, thanks for having me on your show, Chapin. I'm, uh, as, as you said, that you're uh, a big fan of mine. I've always been a big fan of yours. And I'm, I'm really proud of what you're doing with, with your podcast. And I've listened to some of your episodes. And uh, it's an honor to be a guest. So thanks, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So a little bit of background. I grew up on the East Coast in Connecticut, you know, great family life and ended up going to, um, I did a junior semester abroad in Ecuador when I was um, studying at Boston College. And that was kind of like my first big trip abroad where I Got to dig deep and live with a host family and just spend time getting to know another culture. And I fell in love with it. And when I came back for my senior year, I didn't really know what I was going to do in the working world per se. I had a lot of friends who were trying to line up jobs in the States and that just, I knew that that wasn't for me. I, I knew that I wanted to live abroad. And so. I looked into the Peace Corps as an opportunity to 
to go abroad and, and, uh, learn about other cultures and spend time, uh, looking back, I realized that another thing that I wanted was to spend some time, uh, learning about myself. Cause I think that you really tend to do that when you're, when you, you live abroad and you're faced with circumstances that, um, are sort of foreign to you that you didn't, you weren't brought up in. So I, uh, upon graduating college, I actually hadn't quite sorted out my Peace Corps placement yet. And so I went home to live with my parents for a little while and did some odd jobs where I was a substitute gym teacher in an elementary school. And, um, I did some, some construction work. And then, uh, I got my Peace Corps placement in Honduras. And in February of 2004, I traveled down to, uh, to begin my two, what ended up being like a two and a half year stint in the, in the Peace Corps with some three months of training on the front end and then another three to four months where I trained in another incoming group of volunteers on the back end. And in the middle, I was uh, a municipal development volunteer where I lived in a small town and I worked with the local government on various projects that they solicited help on, which ranged from you know, working with the, the, the local mayor's office to write a strategic plan for infrastructure and economic development to helping a, a small community group earn a grant and earn a grant for and then build a community library to uh, working with an engineer friend of mine who was also in the Peace Corps to do a, uh, a topographic land survey to implement a, a potable water system. Uh, so yeah, it was sort of a, a wide range of activities and I was living in this small mountain village, um, in Honduras for about two years. Hmm. Can I ask, um, those types of projects that you were helping with, like who determined what projects needed to be done and where they needed to be done? How was that happening? So the Peace Corps model is that a local, whether it's a local, um, nonprofit group and by local, I mean, uh, to, to that country or that town or village, uh, a local nonprofit or a local government agency will, um, identify a need on in, in their own town's uh, growth and development. And they'll reach out to the Peace Corps office in the capital of that country. The, the Peace Corps has, uh, various programs that are specific to each country. In Honduras, it was, uh, municipal development was the program I worked in. There was a water and sanitation. There was a youth development. Um, there was a, a health program and, uh, protected areas management and, and maybe one more. And so if a local government or local organization working in a, a small, you know, could be it, it could be one of the larger cities in the country. It could be a small rural village. They would identify a need, present that to the Peace Corps program office. The program office would vet that need and, and work with that community uh, leader or, or community organization uh, to determine exactly what that need would be. And, and if it was a match for the placement of a Peace Corps volunteer and then the volunteer would, after three months of training, would be placed with that, um, community organization. And then together the, with, with the organization and the Peace Corps volunteer, the, the, the scope of the projects would be determined. But 
but mo- more often than not, it was um, it was always a need identified by the local community where that Peace Corps volunteer could be plugged in um, as you know somebody who it, you know both uh, as as a volunteer was free labor, which was, was obviously very beneficial when um, you're talking about some of the countries around the world that might not have um, access to as much economic resources as, as say the Western world. Um, and, and also, you know, in addition to bringing in that free labor, it was sort of like a, a different perspective on how to do the job that the Peace Corps volunteer would bring. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess just to, to boil it down to the answer of your question, the need was always determined by the local organization. It was interesting because for personally, for me, you know, I was, I had graduated, I had this, I graduated from my, from, from university. I had a degree in theology. I was 22 years old and I was assigned to work in the municipal. I was, my job description was to be an urban planner in the municipal development. Program. In a country you don't speak the language. <laughs> In, in a country where I, at that point, I did barely speak the language because I had done, I had studied Spanish, uh, growing up and then I had done my, my semester abroad in Ecuador. So, so I, I, I had a grasp of the language, but there were others who came in and, and just to your point, didn't even speak the language. So I was asked to do a job that I had to look up, you know, what is an urban planner? <laughs> I'm being assigned this job. You know, I can sort of speak the language and I'm essentially a 22 year old kid who's going down to help in this village where, you know, I'm working with the elected officials who are, you know, grown adults who have been working in their village their whole life. So it is it's an interesting model. Now, my the group of volunteers that I went down with was an extremely diverse group, and I'm, I'm grateful to have been. Uh, a part of that group. And some of those folks are still some of my best friends to this day. There were 60, 60 Americans who went down and we were divided among across three different projects, uh, like 20 people each. And, but over sort of like the span of those 60 people, there were a bunch of us who were, you know, young, fresh out of college, <laughs> sort of had no business being there. Uh, didn't really know what, what the task was. Then there were some folks who were maybe late twenties, early thirties, who, at least in my group, for example, they had master's degrees in urban planning. They had worked in their own municipal governments where, where they were from. They had done, you know, housing development or, uh, different types of planning activities. Uh, then there were even a couple of people who were seasoned career veterans who were, you know, there were, uh, there was a married couple, um, who were in their sixties who were retiring. And so those, those people were able to bring a wealth of experience to the job. Um, it was just sort of my, me and, and, and my, my cohort of 20 somethings, uh, where, you know, it was sort of make or break if, whether or not you, you wanted to be a, um, a hard worker or have an influence on the folks you were working with. Cause there were frankly some people who just kind of took the Peace Corps as a two year vacation. Now there are checks and balances and you have to, you know, you have to prove that you're doing a certain amount of work with, with, uh, your, your program director, but it's, it, a, 
it's kind of on you. Uh, once you get out to your village, it's on you. You could just kind of goof off and travel, or you could put your nose to the grindstone and realize, as in my case, I realized pretty early on that I was going to be in over my head and I had to hustle to prove to these people that it, I was, I was worth, uh, all of their hard work to get a Peace Corps volunteer. And then this 22 year old kid shows up and we're like, Oh, great. What do we have here? This guy doesn't know anything. So I realized very quickly that I had to work very hard to prove myself. Now, it's not exactly, you're not doing this for free exactly. Am I correct in saying that? Where you do actually get a bit of a, what is it, a monthly salary from the Peace Corps to do this? Can we go into like what actually you have to put up money wise to participate in the Peace Corps experience? When, when you are assigned, you do get a monthly stipend that pays for your, you use that to pay for your housing and um, just your living expenses. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you're given a monthly, I think it's like a monthly savings account or something so that, so that when you come out of the Peace Corps, you end up with at that time, I mean, when I was there, it was, it was 2004 to 2006 when I did my service, I ended up with $6,000 at the end of, um, of my Peace Corps service that, that I used then to, um, parlay into the next, uh, adventure that I went on. But yeah, just to answer your question, you are, you are provided a, a monthly living allowance and you get a, a, a savings and it, it, the amount may be different today. I haven't looked into it, but like I said, it was $6,000 when I came out. And do they pay your for your flights down there? Yes. All, all of that stuff is paid for. So, you know, all the flights and the hotels and all of that stuff that that's all taken care of. Interesting. And then, so let's go about talking about your experience. What was that like? I mean, to be thrown into the fire like that in the middle of the Honduran mountainsides. I mean, overall, was it a good experience? Was it hard? Can you kind of shed a little bit of light on that? Sure. It was one of the best experiences of my life. Uh, I look back on it as a time of tremendous growth. I was, you know, like I said, I was, I was 22 and had no idea what I wanted to do in the world, having just graduated from college. Um, and I met some of, like I said, I met some of some people who to this day are, are some of my best friends. Um, but aside from that, you know, just being thrown into a situation that you have no frame of reference for, you don't know what to expect. And I, I think that that kind of taught me to be partially the person that I am today, where I go into situations or I try to go into situations without any expectations because that experience taught me that any expectations that you have can be, um, can kind of not necessarily lead, lead you astray, but you just have to have an, an open mind because anything can happen. I mean, I remember the first time that I visited the town where I, uh, where I was assigned to live, it was this small mountain town called Guajiquiro. Uh, in the department of La Paz, Guajiquiro La Paz. Um, and it was, there were no more than 500 people that lived there. And they were all of the Lenca Indian ethnicity. So here I am, this white boy from the East Coast who is, I am like the only white boy for miles and miles around. Um, completely different culture. Uh, people just kind of looking at you like you 
you know, I have two heads and, and eight eyes. It's like, not that they never seen somebody like me before because that town had, had a history of having volunteers. But when you're put in the place of being the only one who looks and speaks and acts differently and everybody else is the same and you're the one who's different and they're always looking at you and watching you, then there's, it's almost like there's two ways that that could go. You know, you could either kind of shrink into yourself and be very withdrawn and inward looking and, and be, be timid and afraid, or you could just say, fuck it. I'm, I'm so different that I just have to go out and get to know these people. Like they're gonna think about me and judge me and, and look at me no matter what. So I might as well just be completely open and honest and, and share who I am with them because what's the other option? I'm just going to sit in my house and like not engage. No, it's all about just being completely just kind of just like, like I said, just being completely open. That's awesome, man. So, uh, looking back now, what would you say your overall effect on the town was? Do you think you made a difference? It's a good question. I think that, I think that they probably made a bigger difference on me than I made on them. Um, just because I had to, I learned so much from people. You know, I think that there's this, there's this idea, especially in the, the international, the world of international aid, where the transfer of knowledge is very, is very north south. And so that kind of means like from the developed world to the, to the developing world where in the developed in the West in, you know, in the U S in Europe, we have all these advanced technologies and our economies are, you know, our GDPs are trillion dollar year GDPs. I don't know if that's right. I probably just made myself sound like an idiot. I don't know what, what that figure is, but, um, you know, we, we, the, the Western world is so advanced. We have all these universities and technology and we know the way to do things. And we have to go and teach people who live in the developing world. But what I really found was that people in the developing world, they're, they're doing okay. You know, they, they have their way of life and they taught me a lot more about myself, I think, um, than I was able to teach them. Now, I think that I also, uh, served a purpose, you know, and, and, and helped benefit them. I mean, some of the stuff that I was talking about, like, you know, helping them write this 10 year plan for strategic economic development and growth. I think that that kind of gave, gave that municipal government a framework from which to work, uh, or from which to implement the projects that they wanted to going forward. And it wasn't like I was just sitting in a room writing this thing. It was a very, like we, we literally went, there were 35 little villages that made up this municipality and we held meetings in each of those villages. We walked all over that municipality and, and had open town meetings and people came together and said, Oh, I think that for our town, the priority is to build a school. And the, in the next town, it was, you know, to build a road to connect to the main, to the, the, the main village or the, in the next, it was a health center. And so that, that work of just, collecting the priorities and distilling them into a plan of action and, and putting a budget to those things. I think that that was helpful. Um, and I think that, uh, the, the water project that I worked on with, a, with another fellow volunteer who was an engineer, that was super helpful. I mean, that, that project was, we were able to map the water system 
And then I helped the municipal government write a grant for $215,000 that they were able to then access those resources and build the water system and bring water to like 3000 people, fresh drinkable, you know, potable water to 3000 people. So in those couple example, couple of examples, I think that I can see where I, I left a mark, but overall, I don't hold the work that I did in so high of a regard where I think that I did stuff that was that great. I think that I learned along the way. I learned way more from those folks just about how to appreciate life, appreciate sort of small victories, take things slowly, and um, and be really inclusive too in in the way that decisions are made. So those are those are some important life lessons that that I've taken that I you know still. 10 years after I finished my Peace Corps service that I still carry with me. Yeah. Wow. That sounds amazing, man. I can relate in some of those things that you were saying, just with what, what the people of these countries actually wind up teaching you. Um, when you start to realize that, you know, they actually have a life and a lifestyle that is beautiful in its own way. So then why after the two and a half years continue on? Like why go start your own thing in another developing country? What was the motivation behind that? Wasn't ready to leave. Uh, I loved it. I was having the time of my life. I kept up with all of my friends from back home and they were just kind of, I would hear about what their lives were like, you know, when they were living in, they were living in Boston and New York and some back in Connecticut. And, uh, I just thought my life was, was better. I thought I was having a better time <laughs> to be honest. That's great. Uh, the, the things that I had learned in the Peace Corps kind of really struck a chord with me about community development. And uh, they were things that I wasn't, I wasn't done learning about. And so where I could go next, I thought about maybe applying to another, you know, to another stint in the Peace Corps. Uh, you know, just trying to find a way to, to kind of keep the, keep living abroad. But ultimately, the, the wheels were set in motion to start our own nonprofit organization kind of halfway into the, the, the Peace Corps experience. So while I was there, I met a couple and we, we totally hit it off. We became, we became buddies and we would always, we would see each other kind of whenever, whenever we could and uh, just became great friends. And Nick and Carrie organized a trip. Uh, down to Gigante, Nicaragua for New Year's. We made like the two-day bus trip down from Honduras to Nicaragua and found this idyllic paradise of a village um, on the southern coast of, you know, South Pacific coast of Nicaragua. And at that time, I mean, I think that Gigante was a village of maybe 400 or so fishermen there were a handful of gringos down there. And, uh, that was, that was the first time that I met Jack and, uh, and Carol and Zach. And they had, they were getting ready to kick off Giant's Foot. And you had not come down yet. You were, I think you were on your way. Yeah, I was there February were, you, 2005. That's right. Yeah. So we, so we just missed each other, uh, on that trip, yeah. but Giant's Foot. Giant's foot was getting ready to, to, to get kicked off. And, um, so anyway, we were just, you know, a bunch of Peace Corps volunteers went down there and were partying at the beach and having a good time. And 
Um, couple, couple months later, Nick, Nick and I uh, were having dinner and we were just talking about what we wanted to do at the end of Peace Corps. And, um, we were like, yeah, I think that we should, we should go check Gigante out again. We were talking about kind of the, this small town of fishermen. And, um, one of, one of the big draws there was that there are very close. There are, are world-class waves. And so we kind of learned that this was this burgeoning surf tourism destination. And so Nick grew up and had a passion for surfing and also had a passion for kind of, uh, community, local community development, but specifically locally led community development. So that's sort of like the Peace Corps model that we really fell in love with was this idea of like, yeah, we can bring some resources and different perspective, but ultimately we want to execute the projects that you, the local community want to do. And so, um, Nick and I just started kind of kicking around this idea of, well, what if we kind of started our own little version of, of the Peace Corps, except that it's directed to help people in these Latin American surf tourism destinations where, they're small towns now, but because of the waves, because of this great resource, they're going to blow up. People are going to come. They're going to, they're going to find these waves. And, um, pretty soon development is going to happen to these local communities and they might be pushed aside. So we want to kind of come up with, with a way to help them be a part of the development. And so, you know, there were many conversations and brainstorm sessions and, then we even took a, a second sort of fact-finding trip down to Gigante um, sometime in probably 2006, and that's when I met you. Mm -hmm. That's where uh, we were having our – we had a, a brainstorming session. I think it was like maybe in October. Yeah. Um, or no, it was October 2005. Uh, and we were – you know, so it was the off-season. There weren't waves. It was raining out, and we were just in, in uh, your house – uh, trying to make these plans for how we could come down and, and help this town. And, um, and <laughs> you and, you and Zach were like, oh, these guys are do-gooders. I don't mm -hmm. think they're going to, this plan, this plan is bogus. I don't know if this is going to work, but it was, it was totally great to have you guys there challenging us because ultimately that's what you need. You know, you need people, you can't surround yourself by yes men and people who are like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Everything you, you're, you're doing and saying is great. You need people like, shouting at you being like no way you idiot that's not gonna work <laughs> <laughs> i think it's amazing when i think back to the timing that you both had uh come up with the idea and then started implementing it in gigante like you were probably like two to three years from the blow-up phase when gigante actually started having tourism coming on a regular yearly basis that the fishermen could benefit from that and i just think back to where you were establishing yourselves and really implementing sort of your model and getting the community to understand what was on the horizon and it happened like you predicted the future i would imagine a lot of their minds you guys are geniuses but um can you talk now a little bit about finally cutting your ties with the peace corps and then coming down and and the process in which you guys started or you personally because nick was the money maker guy right he would go up to the states and raise money with his wife carrie and you were the man on the ground um actually implementing the model can you start to talk about what that first year was like and what you did the steps you took sure so as i as i said this was sort of a a process in the making where you know i was still doing my work as a peace corps volunteer but you know you have 
Peace Corps is not a nine to five job where you're sitting in your office, um, kind of chained to your desk. So, you, you know, you have a lot of free time. So I spent probably the second half of my Peace Corps experience, spent a lot of time with Nick and, and some of our other Peace Corps colleagues, um, just coming up with what the, what the Project Woo model would be. What does Project Woo stand for? It's a uh, project wave of optimism. Clever. And, uh, we, that, I mean, that was one of the most fun parts is like, all right, now we have this idea of what we want to do. What are we going to call it? <laughs> and so, uh, that's kind of part of the brainstorming session and, you know, figuring out, okay, what's our, what's our mission statement? And that ended up, you know, after many brainstorming sessions, it, it turned, it turned into, you know, the mission of Project Woo is to facilitate community driven development in Latin American surf travel destinations. Mm -hmm. So boom, there's our, that just tells you what we, what our sums up what our mission is. And then from there, you know, we come up with sort of like, you know, what we, what we want to do. We want to work with, community and community leadership. We want to encourage local empowerment. We want to support local, you know, local folks managing resources. We want, you know, we want to help uh, sort of promote local participation and leadership in identifying, planning and, and executing these community development projects. And we want to be able to be there to provide technical guidance and, and, um, you know, material resources and support for these locally conceived development initiatives. So just let me stop you because I think what you just said is super important. Locally conceived development issues, like you were going to sit there and let them tell you exactly what they needed or wanted and, um, then help them implement that and sustain it. Is that correct? That is the core of what Project Woo was created to do because, you know, I think that we saw through a lot of our Peace Corps work, we had contact with other sort of larger nonprofit organizations or NGOs, as they're often called non-governmental organizations, which is just sort of a word for that. I look at sort of nonprofit and NGO as sort of they're synonymous. They're these organizations that are not they're private, but they're not straight up for profit businesses. Now they have to operate like a business because they have to, they have to bring income in, they have expenses. So they have to, you know, they have to balance their budget. They're oftentimes they can be large organizations. Some of them are, you know, have budgets of several millions or um, hundreds of millions of dollars um, a year. You know, if you look at some of like these larger, like, I don't know, Oxfam or Care or Save the Children, some of these large NGOs that operate worldwide. And so oftentimes their model is, um, ends up being like a, a very top down model where they say, okay, we are going to, we have $10 million to distribute to, um, I don't know, to like support sex education in these small towns. So they'll come into these towns and say, Hey, we have a bunch of money, but we want to teach you about sex education. I don't know why I picked that example. Well, it's true. That's, that's a big one. That's a big one that a lot of people use. They go in, they talk about condom use and how to prevent, um, transmission of, you know, HIV and so forth and so on. Yeah. That's actually, a, that's right, Chip. That's a very good call. Um, and so 
yeah, so they'll come in, they'll, they'll be like, all right, well, we have this money. We want to teach this. And we were the opposite. We were like, we don't even have any money, but we could find some and we can find it if you tell us what you want to do. But we would, this is sort of now once we're already in, in the village in, in Higante, I mean, the model that we created was to literally go door to door. I took a census and went door to door and kind of took the temperature of, of the village and figured out, you know, what's the population, what's the education level, what's the income level, um, and what are people's biggest desires for the growth of their town. And this was done, I mean, I, you know, I, I came up with sort of my list of questions, but it was done through very informal conversations. And if people didn't want to provide information, then that was, that was totally cool. I wasn't going to force it. I wasn't some like government agent that was, you know, from the census bureau telling them I needed to have their information. I would just spend, I mean, I spent probably three to five months just living in this village before I carried out any of this work because I had to kind of gain people's trust and just get to know people before I started like poking around and asking all these questions and explaining what I was, what Project Wu was there to do. And I want to commend you on that because, yeah, you put your time in. I remember, I mean, we were the only uh, other gringos on the beach and we were at the south end and Adam was always sitting in the middle of town talking to locals for hours on end. I remember asking you once, I said, what do you talk about with them all day? He's like, to be honest, man, sometimes we just talk about the red truck that drove by <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> I just remember thinking like, wow, what perseverance to sit there for so many hours and having what seemed just to be boring conversations, just trying to extract what these people really thought they might need. And yeah, you, you finally figured it out. And, and what, what, what did you guys, what did you guys come up with? What did they want? So there were various different ideas, you know, like a uh, trash pickup, um, you know, like, a maybe a health clinic or I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but the, the, the main, the, the main need that people identified that was sort of this recurring theme throughout all the conversations was that there was no public transportation in and out of the town of Gigante. You either had, you know, there was, there was a, a main dirt road that was sort of like the main arterial through this municipality of Tola. And, you know, f that road would take you to the municipal capital of Tola and then on to Rivas, which was a larger city, and then on to Managua, which is the capital. And the road sort of got wider and paved and faster and better as you, as you got closer and closer to the capital. But where we were from the main road, it was, what do you think, Jape? Like, two miles maybe from yeah. the main road yeah, it took about to an the hour, town one hour or so to walk from our town to the main road yeah so and people if you didn't have a friend with a pickup truck or um or if you couldn't hitchhike in and out you were walking and what that meant was there was only an elementary school or two elementary schools in our town and so kids, when they were going to go to high school, they'd have to walk that hour. They'd have to get up at the crack of dawn, walk that hour, and then catch the bus to get them into Tola. And so parents were not happy with that situation. You know, there was their, their kids were, some kids were just not going to high school. And then others were having to sacrifice, get up at the crack of dawn to catch a bus. And they'd just be like tired and dirty by the time they, they, cause, cause by, by the, 
by the time they were picked up, they had to ride on the on the roof of of this yellow school bus. So they'd get to school having woken up at four a.m., tired, dirty, and hungry. And you know, mm-hmm. can you really learn when you're in that kind of situation? Right. So anyway, so what ended up coming out as what ended up coming out as the most pressing need was public transportation. And so, you know, after gosh, I want to say probably another three, four months tacked onto that first five months is when the town in a public meeting voted. And that was the priority project. So after what are we talking eight, nine months of from the time that I started living there, that's when we had, okay, the town wants public transportation. And then there was a moment of like, okay, well, the fuck are we going to do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now we now we know what people want, but how are we going to do that? Now, are you living on your savings this whole time, or has Project Woo become an entity now that um, is paying you a small salary to do this research? Yeah, great question. So um, that'll that'll take me back in time a little bit to when we were still Peace Corps volunteers. At by the end of that of the the end of that stint. Um, toward the end of 2006, Nick and I decided that, um, and so the, yeah, so, so Nick, Nick and I formed project wave of optimism, right? It was sort of, we had this idea and then it, it came, came to being and we decided that I would be the guy to move to Higante and implement the program on the ground. And Nick and his wife, Carrie, were moving back to the U S to kind of start or, or restart their, their life in the U S and Nick was going to dedicate himself to fundraising for Project Wave of Optimism. And to do that, we had to um, incorporate as a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And that is a, the, a, a designation of uh, tax-exempt status with the IRS. So if you register, you know, instead of creating uh, like a limited liability company or a corporation, you register as you're a registered nonprofit. And you'll often hear the term thrown out 501c3. That's just the the tax exempt status that is that is given by the IRS so that you can raise funds. And if you donate, like Chapin, if you donate 100 bucks to a nonprofit organization, well, you can write that off on your taxes. Mm -hmm. 100 bucks isn't such a big deal. But when you get to, you know, when you're a, uh, maybe you're like a, you're a, a company, like for example, Reef, which is one of the, you know, the largest surf brands, they became an early and very consistent supporter of Project Wave of Optimism. And geez, they've probably donated tens of thousands of dollars to Project Woo over the years from 2006. And so the 501c3 status is helpful because they can write that off of their tax liability. And that's just paperwork so, you download online and just send it in via mail or what? Yeah. So it's, it's actually probably these days much more streamlined. I think you can probably just go on to the IRS's website. Um, and there's certain, you know, there's certain paperwork that you have to fill out. You have to, um, as part of the incorporation process, you have, you have to set up a board. Uh, like a board of directors, which, you know, at the time, our board of directors was me, Nick, Carrie, and two of our friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had to write articles of incorporation, which are sort of, it can be very boilerplate, like a, you know, you can Google articles of incorporation for 
an NGO and sort of boilerplate language, but you fill out some of the specifics about how your organization will operate. Um, and you have to file your mission statement, your vision. Um, and then, you know, there's certain rules, like you have to have a certain number of board meetings with minutes every year. You have to file your taxes every year with the IRS. Um, but it's all, it's, it, it, it's not too difficult, you know, it just sort of takes, um, spending a little bit of time doing some research and Nick was able to raise money. We did a, I think it was in 2006 going into 2007, right before I officially moved to Gigante. Um, we threw a, a Woo Year's Eve party in Santa Barbara where Nick went to school. So, you know, we, we just threw this party and raised a bunch of money. I think we probably raised like, gosh, I want to say six thousand dollars, six, seven thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And that was the initial, that was the initial Woo budget. And so when I, you know, I, I, Finished Peace Corps 2006, went down, um, I think like September, October 2006, I was in Higante for two months, went back home uh, for the holidays, and then I was set to move down January 2007, and we had $6,000, $7,000, and it was like, all right, we got to make this last for however long it lasts mm-hmm. until we're either able to raise more money or until, until it runs out. And so that was all, that was all the money that we had. And I had to, that was my living expenses. And I think that for the first little while, I didn't even take a salary. Um, you know, I just kind of like lived off of the funds that we raised, but over the years we were able to sort of become a, you know, quote unquote, a real organization. And we had, we had corporate donors and we were able to find some, some wealthy folks who we met in, um, in and around Southern Nicaragua who really bought into our, to our cause and they underwrote us. Uh, and so then I was able eventually, I think to, I don't remember Chapin how much I was paying myself, but it wasn't any more than like at the end, you know, 800 bucks a month or something. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. So now in hindsight, you've got the, the local bus coming through Higante. Um, you started multiple other projects in Higante with bringing in multiple volunteers and multiple new project managers, so forth and so on. Looking back on your experience, how did the model that you implemented work? And then how did it fall short in the end? And, and how did you um, have to adapt to all those things that you didn't actually weren't able to predict? That's a great question. Um, that kind of brings me to one of the keys to this is really having passionate, uh, motivated leadership. And I think that over time, what happens is that, um, there's, there's a, there's sort of a burnout effect. I know that I personally, I just got burnt out after living in Central America doing this local community development work for like five years straight. It's kind of, it's By kind the of end thankless, of it, isn't it? I mean, from an outsider's perspective, like you work your butt off trying to help and you're not always met with people who either want you there or agree with what you're doing. So you have this constant struggle to do what you perceive is good and a portion of the community also believes is good, but you also have resistance from another portion 
or individuals that makes it extremely hard. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, that's accurate. I mean, you're not always, that's another big lesson that I take away, right? Is that you are, no matter what you do, even if what you do is, you know, ostensibly good and is benefiting a lot of people in the community, there are always going to be detractors. You know, I think that that's one of the hardest parts about local community development work is that there's, there's not a, there's not necessarily like this huge financial incentive for people to, for people to work with you or support you. You're really counting on, on people to work in their, in their off hours, so to speak, because, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks are just struggling to get by. You know, people are, are making ends meet. You know, you look at Higante and, you know, it starts out as, as this fishing village and very sort of day by day lifestyle where people would go out and catch their food and catch, catch enough fish to then turn around and sell and make a little bit of money and they can pay for their homes and their, their bills and feed themselves and put some clothes on their back and their kids' backs and send their kids to school. And it's a very sort of day to day type existence. And you're asking people when you're doing community development work, you're asking people to take times out of, take time out of their livelihoods to come in and attend a community meeting or maybe work on the committee that helps, you know, um, helps go and get that bus, figure out where we're going to, you know, we have to go to Managua on several trips to find the right bus that, or the right truck that fits our budget. Budget. We have to take it to the mechanic shop to get it fixed. So somebody has got to be paying attention to that stuff. We have to work, go to countless meetings with the mayor and, and other transportation committees to get the route approved for the bus. Um, and so as the community development worker, as, as the outsider, the key is having people who are champions in the local, in the, the town. You have to have local leaders who are willing to bust their asses with you. And I think over time, people kind of get worn out unless they see results. Now, I, I think that Project Wu has shown, you know, time and again, we've shown results because we, we did bring, eventually, we brought the first ever public transportation to Higante. Um, now that actually ended up, what, what ended up happening is that that spurred on, um, essentially like free market competition and other bus routes came into Higante and they could do it better and more efficiently than we could, uh, cause we were sort of like publicly or privately through donations subsidizing this, this bus that eventually got, got priced out through competitive through the competitive marketplace. So on one hand, that bus, because it's no longer there, maybe you look at it and and maybe it failed. But on the other, what it did is it spurred market competition to come in and now there is a cheaper service that doesn't have to be subsidized by outside donors. So so you look at it kind of like kind of kind of both ways. Um but but yeah kind of to to get back to your to your question. Um they're always along the path. You know, you never know who is going to be a supporter and who then maybe thinks 
you think they're a supporter, but then they kind of come out and, and they're against your project for whatever reason, because ultimately you're an outsider, you know, as this yeah. gringo who's, who's down in this, down in this village and you're sort of seen as a do-gooder, but, um, they're just kind of, I mean, you know, Chapin, small town life can be, can, can be tricky at times. Absolutely. You know, you're, you're somebody who's not from there. And you never and, will be. You'll uh, never, ever be ex- accepted as a local as one of their own. They might like you, they might appreciate you being there, but when push comes to shove, and even if, say, you were to get robbed by a local and you bring it to the town's attention, they don't they won't they don't support you in that necessarily. They're gonna help you get your stuff back. You know, it's like, oh sorry, that sucks, but you're you're not really a part of this village that we need to like reprimand the situation. And going back to what you said, which really kind of just popped in my head as a light bulb moment was there's this village that sustains itself prior to us coming. There's a very give and take ebb and flow of fishermen getting fish, locals surviving, no one's starving to death, everyone's living. They're living day to day though, like you said, in the moment. And there really is no reason to look two months, six months, four years down the line because their life is sufficient the way it is. And then we come in because we have the foresight to see what's about to happen trying to like sound the alarms in a in a sense and let them know like hey this is coming whether you like it or not and we're here to kind of help you transition if you're willing to listen to what we have to say and we'll we'll kind of just hopefully give you the tools that's going to help you benefit from the changes that are coming and a lot of people don't like change man you know i don't like change you don't like change maybe maybe not but it's hard it's a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow you know I don't know, just some, something you said struck that in my mind. It's, it's a, it's an excellent point. Um, I think that, you know, I often try to compare or I don't try to compare. I, I do. I compare, um, the, the, the giant's foot surf model, which was your business. Mm-hmm. You together with, um, with, with Zach and Carol and, and Jack created a local or I'm sorry, created a, a, a surf tourism company where you guys would bring folks down from the U S or Canada or wherever and provide them this amazing week where, you know, all, all inclusive meals, three boat trips a day to surf these awesome waves and kind of like the guests, if they wanted, could catch a glimpse of local culture. If not, if all they want to do is surf, then that's cool. Um, and you guys built a super successful business and, so right next door, I'm operating, you know, my, my nonprofit organization doing kind of like this, um, community development work. And I was just always able to sort of compare what our standing in the community was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, that there are absolutely merits to, to both, you know, going into a community wherever it is, even if it's a, a new community that you're not from in the U.S. Like if you come in and you start a business and you employ people, like you guys did, you, you had, you had several, you provided jobs to several, um, local people from Higante. Mm-hmm. And by that model, you know, you're able to, th- those folks who, who had those jobs and spent a lot of time with you guys and kind of learned your, your business mentality have, I, I think gone on to be, to be pretty successful. And so, you know, I think that there's, there, there, there are all, there's multiple ways to kind of interact with, with a, 
a foreign local community. But at the end of the day, I mean, you're right. We're always going to be the outsiders. And I, I learned, I learned pretty early on, um, in my, in my Peace Corps days that no matter how much I tried to, to speak Spanish as exactly as, as the locals did and catch up, catch all like the local dialogue and the, the colloquialisms. And, and no matter how many times I like sat and, and, you know, drank coffee with, with the, the guy, like the fishermen when they came back and played on the local, you know, I was on the local soccer team when I was in Honduras. And then I played on the local baseball team in Gigante. And, um, no matter how much I would, think that I'm part of this town, I'm always going to be the outsider. And so there's only really kind of so much change that you can, that you can affect or so much impact that you can have with folks. And, um, you know, I think that there's, there, there's not one right or wrong way to, to go about doing that. I think that as long as, um, you know, you guys had quite an impact in, in that village, you know, I mean, you have, and I, I know Zach and Carol are still in touch with, with a couple of the folks who worked for them and you go back quite frequently and, and have relationships with people there. And so, um, I don't know, man, I think that like overall it's at the end of the day, it's kind of just about the relationships that you end up building with people. And if through that, you are also able to kind of work together on, on some projects that maybe have a, a positive impact on the lives of, of some of those local folks there, um, whether it's on like their economic livelihood or their, or their opened or their eyes open to, to different cultures, um, or even just some of the conversations that you have with people that just kind of, you know, help change their perspective and they help change your perspective. Then, um, that's almost all you can, all you can ask for because at the end of the day, there's no, like that bus program that we started is, is, is no longer there. And yeah, we, the second project that we built is a, is a health center and, um, that is, it's a beautiful building. It was up and running and, and there's, uh, a gentleman in the, in the town of Gigante who has made it his priority to, um, for lack of a better phrase to just bust our balls and make life really difficult for us and, um, and make it so that implementing our projects in Gigante is, has to go through him and is really difficult. And he, 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 for whatever reason, doesn't want to see the project be successful. And so, you know, despite all of the successes that we've had over time, um, that can all kind of go away if, if people decide that, that they don't want you there or, or don't want, yeah, if, if people don't want you there. And I think that's kind of the biggest thing for me personally is just to accept almost. It's like, okay, well, the, the whole thing started by us coming down and saying, Hey, yeah, whether you guys like it or not, the village is going to change. You know, you're, it's going to be inundated by tourism. And the life, as you know, it's going to change. And if, if you guys want to take advantage of our, you know, our ideas and organizing support and, and fundraising abilities to implement some projects and do something about it, then we're all in. But if you guys don't, then that's cool too. We have to be able to just say, 
we have to be bigger than ourselves and just say, um, Hey, that's okay. You guys don't want, if you don't want the support, if you don't want the help, then okay, we, we're not going to force it on you. Right. That's a super hot topic with a lot of different perspectives. And I think you nailed it. Just if you're going down with the good intentions and not too many expectations and ultimately you're happy with just making some really cool connections and maybe changing a few lives and you're on the right path, you know, um, and it can be a very fulfilling experience for you. Um, you know, we're at the hour mark here and I think a lot of people would probably like to maybe learn a little bit more about woo and you've given some really cool actionable tips for people who possibly are listening to this and want to go try to join the Peace Corps or start their own. NGO, do you have a place that people can go uh, research more about Wu or even ask you direct questions um, in some way, shape, or form, Adam? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you can, um, folks can check out Project Wu. So it's projectwoo.org. Um, and that's our website where you can see sort of the, the history, the mission, and the vision, and you know, learn about some of the programs that we currently have going on. And we'll put that in the show notes. Um, you know, I think you can probably just, uh, Google Peace Corps and it'll take you to the, the, the Peace Corps website. Um, if you're interested in checking out what the Peace Corps is like, there's also, there, the Peace Corps puts on all kinds of events, um, a lot of the time at, at local at colleges or universities. So there's all, there's always info sessions, um, and then, yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to put some of my contact information in, in your show notes, Jake, cool. if people want to get in touch with cool. me. Well, yeah, maybe we just will, they'll get through to you on in Project Wu in some way, shape, or form. Yep. Cool, man. Thank you so much for sitting here today and sharing your experiences, Adam. I, I think that it can be beneficial for people to hear the reality of it, you know, because a lot of people do want to help. And helping others is really good, you know, but it's it's not always as easy as just going down and, and, and just starting what you perceive to be what the people need. You know, sometimes it takes time to get to know the community and know what they want. And even then you can create what everyone said they wanted. And in the end, somebody steps up and says, I personally don't like you here and I'm going to make it really hard for you to do anything more. And they happen to be somebody of power within that community. So thank you for sharing, Adam. It's been great talking to you and uh, talk to you soon, buddy. Thanks, Jabe. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.